You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 31st of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Pakistan decides not to execute a so-called blasphemer. Many Pakistanis are outraged. My guests Samira Shackle and Victor Bulma-Thomas will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the United States' abrupt interest in ending the war in Yemen, the first indications of what Jair Bolsonaro's presidency of Brazil will look like, and would you wear a Scotland Yard-branded baseball cap? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Samira Shackle, freelance journalist writing for the New Statesman, Guardian, Al Jazeera, Deutsche Welle and Monocle, and Victor Bulma-Thomas, Associate Fellow in the Americas Programme at Chatham House. Welcome both. We will start in Yemen, where after more than three years of war between a Saudi-led coalition propping up the government and the Houthi rebel movement backed by Iran, the United States appears to have decided that enough is enough. US Defence Secretary James Mattis said all parties to the conflict need to get around a table within the next 30 days, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has publicly urged the Saudis to desist bombing civilian areas. At least 17,000 people have been killed or injured in the fighting. Many times that number have suffered disease and or starvation as a consequence. Uh, Victor, why has the United States suddenly decided that this needs to stop? A very good question, because clearly this is a step that should and could have been taken months, if not years ago. And so you have to assume it's connected to one of two things, uh, the midterm elections next week and the fall from grace of the Saudi Arabian crown prince. My guess it's the latter, because this has created an opportunity for a fresh approach towards Yemen. And uh, thank goodness it looks as if the United States is taking advantage of that. I rather suspect it is the latter. I I would be surprised uh, if the state of the war in Yemen was looming as a major issue in the American midterms. Um, Samira, is that what going... I mean, there's two possible dynamics, if that is the case here, that either the US is trying to leverage uh, Saudi Arabia's embarrassment over the Jamal Khashoggi affair to try and get them to knock this increasingly inexplicable war in Yemen off, or possibly the Saudis are trying to leverage the US in order to score a much-needed PR win. Yeah, I think that's probably a bit of both there. Um, and Very possibly. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that the... The, there's a kind of level of scrutiny on um, on Saudi Arabia after the Jamal Khashoggi case internationally that um, kind of hasn't been particularly in the mainstream. Obviously, it's been kind of rumbling on in in certain sections of the public, but I think in the, it really has been headline top news. Um, I think I remember sitting in this studio a few weeks ago talking about why this one case had attracted so much attention when this kind of huge humanitarian disaster in Yemen hadn't. Uh, so I think there's certainly an element... Um, both of uh, Western powers wanting to leverage that moment to maybe get some change, but also Western powers, you know, being quite aware that they're complicit in that humanitarian disaster and there might be some more scrutiny, and there already has been a bit more scrutiny of their role in the war in Saudi Arabia, therefore making it not just an embarrassment, um, embarrassment is a a weak word, but, you know, not not just an issue for for Saudi Arabia and its coalition, but also for Western powers 
providing arms and logistical support. Uh, but yeah, certainly I think there's also the idea that it would could be a very useful rebranding exercise for MBS, uh, the prince who is acutely aware of branding and has every time he's visited uh, Western power has invested in like massive ad campaigns. I don't know if you saw those in the UK when he came. I do remember yeah. them. Um, Victor, on that subject, if we if we do indulge in a, a spot of uh, Saudi-oriented Kremlinology here, is it also possible that there are forces in Riyadh trying to go around uh, MBS while he's temporarily uh, on the naughty step, as it were? Because this war in Yemen has been one of his pet projects, and it, it was supposed to be, I think, one of those strike swiftly and uh, win decisively, we'll all be home by Christmas variety military adventures, and it hasn't really worked out that way. No, it hasn't. And in fact, I, I can't see how any rebranding would work to his advantage here, because if you look at all the possible outcomes in the next uh, few weeks, I would have thought they are all going to weaken his position. Uh, and it is significant, of course, that uh, the king's brother has now returned. Uh, and uh, it looks as if, uh, in my view, um, uh, this is a very dangerous moment for the crown prince, and I'm not sure that he can recover from it. Uh, but so what? Uh, if the net result is uh, uh, an end of the conflict in Yemen, so much the better. Uh, well, indeed so. But, Samira, if we go back to the uh, main thrust of this initiative, which does seem to be coming from the Pentagon, from Defence Secretary James Mattis, he says all parties to the conflict uh, need to meet within 30 days. If this is either an attempt by the United States to help Saudi Arabia out of a jam or Saudi Arabia asking the United States to help it out of a jam, uh, how interested do you imagine Iran are going to be in participating in that? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? I guess... Um Iran obviously uh, has no interest in helping the US or Saudi Arabia out of a sticky spot, I think particularly given um, the reimposition of sanctions by the US um, falling apart of the nuclear deal. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we, we've just been talking about how uh, from the Saudi side, this was supposed to be a go in, win quickly, get out war. I think uh, for Iran, I don't think they particularly want it to be a kind of permanent state of affairs to be um, funding the Houthi rebels and being engaged in this conflict that doesn't have a clear end in sight. So, you know, particularly given that they're they're facing um, the bite of sanctions and so on all over again. So I think that, you know, it, it's, it's possible that they won't want to continue the war and that that might provide an opening. But of course, they have no kind of political interest in helping the US. Uh, Victor, as Samira correctly points out, Iran has no particular reason as things stand to be cooperative with the United States, what with the American withdrawal from the nuclear deal, the imposition of sanctions and so on. Um, if Iran was to respond to James Mattis's invitation by saying, well, what's in this for us? Uh, is America politically able to offer Iran anything at the moment? Well, I think it's important to start with recognizing there is no equivalence between Iranian support for the Houthi rebels and the Saudi-led coalition's support for what is effectively a government in exile. And I think it's a big mistake that these two things are treated as if they're somehow the same. So the Iranian presence or otherwise around the negotiating table is frankly rather minor compared with uh, the presence of uh, the Saudis and the Houthi rebels themselves. I can see lots of reasons, actually, why the Iranians um, would be interested in being there and might not um, demand a very high price. Um, 
anything that uh, removes um, an issue of conflict between them and the United States right now is definitely in their interest, particularly as there's a huge amount of flexibility in the way that the Trump administration can apply the oil sanctions that are due to come into force uh, in November. Okay, well, let's move on slightly now and look at Pakistan. It does seem pretty weird that at this late stage in the human experiment, it should feel necessary to celebrate someone not being executed for blasphemy. But let us be grateful for small mercies. The Supreme Court in Islamabad has overturned the death sentence passed in 2010 upon Asia Bibi, a Christian woman who was accused of insulting Muhammad in an argument with her neighbours. Judges said that the prosecutors had categorically failed to prove the case beyond reasonable doubt, which isn't the honestly are we still doing this, which might have been preferred, but is significant enough to make Miss Bibi a free woman, if likely a hunted one. A reminder that the governor of Punjab, Salman Tasir, was murdered in 2011 for speaking up on her behalf. Violent protests against the verdict have been reported in several cities. Um, Samira, basically, I think I'll ask first the big question. How is it still theoretically possible even for a country in 2018 uh, to be passing capital verdicts on the crime of blasphemy or passing indeed any verdicts on the crime of blasphemy? Uh, I think it's kind of testament to how powerful the conservative religious political lobby is in in Pakistan. And that element has always been there and um, is, I think, empowered by uh by political unrest and the fact that this is a country that was explicitly set up um, in order to provide a homeland for India's Muslims. So religion is kind of bound into the fabric of the state. It becomes a highly, highly political issue. It's almost a political issue from the start because that's built into the foundation of the state. And you've had successive um, leaders over the course of the last uh, six or seven decades um, Uh, kind of pandering to those elements and I think that's really what you see with the blasphemy law Uh, and it's become such a toxic political issue that no one wants to touch it. Uh, You referred to Salman Tassir there, Um, he was not the only politician to be assassinated in 2011 actually two, um, also Shabazz Shabazz Bhatti who was the uh, Minister for Minorities who also spoke out for Asya Bibi and reform of the blasphemy law was also assassinated that year, another politician who tried to um, promote reform, Shari Rahman was uh, went into hiding um and so i think that level of kind of threat and the way that it's been taken up by uh the more extreme conservative elements has just meant people don't want to touch it it's really really toxic um there's a a weak state apparatus that is not capable of protecting people properly and that gives more and more power and, and credence to these extreme elements uh who have managed to kind of um uh, kind of posit this blasphemy law and other in- incredibly repressive measures like that as um, being Islamic and therefore the opposition of it to be un-Islamic and that's kind of how it's happened I think Just to follow that up uh, then given given the stakes involved with this particular issue, uh, it is clearly an early test for a new Prime Minister Has, has Imran Khan responded to this uh, decision by the Supreme Court? He has and, and in um, during the election campaign, he was, he was just elected in July, he was really pandering to the kind of pro-blasphemy law elements and he made several speeches where he spoke very in very glowing terms about the blasphemy law and how it's a good law and, and blah 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 uh, but he came out uh, today and made a very strongly worded speech where he criticised the protesters who were disputing the verdict. Um, he basically basically told them to shove it in as many words, you know, said that this is the verdict of the Supreme Court and we need to 
uh, we need to respect it. And that's significant, uh, particularly in terms of the language he used. But I think uh, it's also worth noting that he's not um, he's not criticising the law. No one's talking about reforming the law. There's a celebration of the fact that, you know, this woman has been freed. She's not been sentenced to death and that there was an apparently fair verdict. But the, the kind of actual question of the law itself hasn't really been broached anywhere that I've seen. Uh, Victor, does that suggest a recognition, do you think, on, on Imran Khan's behalf at least? And, and, and he, he certainly was before going into politics by dint of the job he used to do as a, a world-famous test cricketer, a, a, a very worldly, well-travelled individual. Does he perhaps have a greater sense than some Pakistani politicians might of how a blasphemy law at all, never mind one enforced in theory by capital punishment, looks to the rest of the world? Well, there's not a lot to celebrate here. I mean, he was basically supporting a decision of an independent uh, Supreme Court, and anything else would have been outrageous. Uh, the court itself uh, didn't rule against the death penalty. It didn't rule against blasphemy laws. All it did, it said that the evidence against this woman originally was fundamentally flawed. And that suggests that the lower courts are not independent and that they're subject to huge amounts of pressure. So, yes, of course, it's the right decision, but uh, we shouldn't get carried away by it. There's a lot of things wrong here. Having said that, Lots of countries do have the death penalty. Lots of countries have blasphemy laws. Not many execute you because of blasphemy laws, but Pakistan is not the only one, sadly. And um, uh, I cannot see this particular ruling leading uh, in a hurry to changes on either the blasphemy law itself or the death penalty. What do you think, Samira? Is this one of those things that just isn't going to change, partly because of the the risks of attempting to change it, which you outlined earlier? Mm, yeah, I think um, it's hard because it's to, yeah. it's not just a political risk you would be taking if you were yeah. a politician and decided this is the thing I'm going to fix. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely true, as you see with the kind of um, pretty aggressive protests that are happening today. Though, I mean, that, um, those are led by a political party that was set up pretty much explicitly to support the blasphemy law. Like that's the whole point of the party. This was supporters of the assassin of the governor of Punjab, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, they're called the TLP, and they uh, that's basically what their platform is, is defending the blasphemy law. And they got actually quite as not insignificant uh, percentage of the vote. So, yeah, I think actually reforming the law um, is not in sight in the near future. And, and of course, this... Um, this particular case was so high profile, you know, it's been a really big, um, yeah, it was headline news uh, around the world and has been kind of known around the world in the way that lots of other blasphemy cases aren't um, in, in Pakistan. So I think there probably was a sense that the that the world's watching. Uh, but I think even the the verdict today is a, is a small victory because, um, you know, you have lower court judges basically scared to dismiss the cases because of the threat of violence. Uh, and you have an incredibly low burden of proof written into the law itself. I mean, you've had cases in court where accusers can refuse to say what they're saying has happened because they don't want to repeat the blasphemy. So it's kind of that, insanely low. That is literally low. a Monty Python sketch. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think even just seeing a kind of semblance of, uh, of rationality applied to what is an incredibly unjust um, and inhumane law is something at least. Uh, Victor, how much more difficult uh, in terms of international reputation could this get for Pakistan? Because there, there now will be the follow-up story of what actually becomes of Asia Bibi. I think there seems to be a consensus that she will not be able to stay in Pakistan. Several countries have offered her asylum, but this, this story could yet run and run, couldn't it? 
Well, obviously, if she stayed in Pakistan, her, her, her life would be seriously at risk. And were she to be killed, that would be a total disaster, obviously, not just for her and her family, but for the reputation of Pakistan more generally. So I agree with you. I think uh, one assumes that, uh, that she will leave. I, I have to say that... Uh, not a huge amount is expected of Pakistan in the outside world when it comes to these issues. It's sort of accepted that um, it's at the extreme end uh, when it comes to religious intolerance and uh, and all that sort of thing. So uh, one hopes that uh, with this small step uh, that has just been announced that things might uh, slowly improve. I'm not hugely optimistic, but I do remember our own blasphemy laws in this country, which after all were only repealed relatively recently. And I think what brought them into uh, disrepute was the fact that they were being flouted on such uh, regularity and the courts essentially were doing nothing, the police was doing nothing, the courts were doing nothing, that eventually they became redundant. We're a long way from that in Pakistan, but perhaps, you know, in 20, 30 years' time that might be the... the, the uh, best outcome. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Samira Shackle and Victor Bulma-Thomas. Coming up next, Brazil's new president sets his sights on the rainforest, not in a good way, and London's police service sets its sights on becoming a hot new fashion trend. What is it like to be a city forgotten and rediscovered? Monocle Films travels to Gunsan in South Korea to bear witness to its urban revival. Here, natives and newcomers are creating quirky bars, art spaces and a bright future for this charming coastal outpost. Gunsan, building on the past, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Samira Shackle and Victor Bulma-Thomas. And let's look now at Brazil. Jair Bolsonaro will not be sworn in as president until January 1st, which means that he has until then to signal some suggestion of what his presidency will be like. And Brazilians have that long to make clear what they think of it. The hefty demonstrations, which have occurred in several Brazilian cities already, seem to have been more against the fact of Bolsonaro's election than any policy particulars. But what he has announced looks like it will give protesters plenty more to work with. Among other initiatives, he apparently plans to merge the ministries of the environment and agriculture, discouraging given Bolsonaro's imminent role as custodian of the world's largest rainforest. Um, Samir, is there any way at all that that isn't as bad as it looks? Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like it, does it? This is I mean, also... it's almost like he's trying to yeah. be funny. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also a guy who's... Um, uh, expressed scepticism about climate change and spoken about pulling out of the Paris Accords. Um, And so I think we shouldn't be surprised that, um, you know, preserving the environment isn't high on his list of priorities. Uh, He's also got links, well-documented links with the uh, agriculture business lobby. um, And, you know, this is a kind of long-running debate in Brazil about whether strict rules about forestation and deforestation are impeding economic development. And I think it's quite clear, both from his statements... um, during the campaign and before that uh, and from this new announcement uh, it's quite clear which side Bolsonaro is on. Um, Victor, on the subject of the the demonstrations against him which are understandable enough given the various positions and statements that Bolsonaro has taken and made during his career, isn't the trouble with them that if you are running and or standing as he is as a, a law and order authoritarian they kind of work for him, don't they? 
well, I think given the divisions that we've seen in Brazil leading up to these elections, uh, it would be very surprising if we hadn't had uh, some demonstrations like this. But if I may, I'd just like to go back to the question that you asked, Samira. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Because um, when leaders are elected, often we're left wondering what they're going to do because their campaign has been deliberately ambiguous and opaque and all the rest of it. It's the exact opposite with Bolsonaro. We know exactly what he uh, wants to do. Um, there's been very little uh, contradictory uh, aspects uh, uh, about his campaign, both before the first round and the second round. And what he has just announced is exactly in line with uh, what he said he would do. Actually, he said he'd abolish the environment ministry. Now he's talking about merging the two, but I suspect it virtually comes to the same thing. So the issue in Brazil with Bolsonaro is not uh, what you know, uh, how will he resolve the ambiguities in his program? That That isn't the issue. The question is to what extent he can carry it out through executive privilege and merging ministries is something he can do and to what extent he will be blocked either by Congress or by the states or by the courts. And that's what we don't know. I mean, all those things that uh, Victor was saying there about Bolsonaro, uh, Samira, were, of course, what a lot of people said about Trump, that, you know, he, he said these are the things he's going to do. People voted for him on that basis, and now he's trying to do them. Um, where Bolsonaro is concerned, though, is it is it better or worse that he, unlike Trump, actually is a professional politician and therefore may actually have some idea of how to accomplish things? Because one of the things that has been a great stay on some of Trump's more extreme instincts is that he doesn't know how anything works, he doesn't really seem interested in learning how anything works, uh, and therefore can't actually get anything done. Yeah, obviously, a, a kind of more professional and competent pump, uh, Trump is quite a terrifying, um, quite a terrifying prospect. Um, and, and one would hope a contradiction yeah. in terms. You would, but yeah, but I, I mean, I think that's certainly true. Someone with a kind of, with a working knowledge of the system and and ways to do it can better exploit the system. Uh, so that's certainly certainly a worry. And I think those. Um, comparisons um, obviously comparisons between you know countries with very different outlooks can be problematic but I do think on that particular point you know you have someone who's made quite extreme uh, statements during a campaign then trying to do them in office and you know in this case of Trump being quite surprised that he was actually trying to do them in some quarters I think um, I think that that comparison certainly is apt there. Uh, Victor how should other world leaders especially those who do lead uh, democracies respond to the election of some Someone like Bolsonaro, specifically, did Theresa May, Prime Minister of this country, do the right thing by not calling him uh, and saying that she would at some point write a letter? No, I think she should have called him, actually, uh, although you might be surprised uh, to hear me say that. Even the Venezuelan president uh, congratulated the Brazilian. He didn't congratulate Bolsonaro, but he congratulated the Brazilian people for, you know, demonstration of democracy and so on. I mean, when you have uh, uh, 55 million people uh, voting for a particular candidate, um, you are incumbent. Within a democratic election, no one has challenged the election. Indeed not. Uh, it's really a, a bit arrogant just to say, well, you know, you don't count because uh, we don't like your views or something like that. Uh, he has, uh, even before the second round, reached out to uh, many of the neighboring countries, spoken to their presidents, and... Um, 
It may well be that uh, his relations with uh, other countries in South America are not as bad as they will be with uh, some other countries in the world. It's interesting that of the three countries he said he will visit first, um, one is a South American country, i.e. Chile, the others being Israel and the United States. Uh, but there will be trouble ahead for sure. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, let's look now at London. Uh, It has, of course, for many years been possible for visitors to American cities to adorn themselves with clothing bearing the logos of the local police forces. Here in London, Scotland Yard, who one might have hoped would be quicker on the uptake, you know, given their job and everything, has at last decided that it is overdue a slice of this particular pie. The Metropolitan Police Service is to oversee an expansion of its presently meagre range of merchandise, perhaps to include Scotland Yard branded clothes, headgear and homeware. Funds raised will be directed, it says here, to putting more bobbies on the beat. Samira, will you be drinking from a Metropolitan Police coffee mug or wearing a Scotland Yard, I don't know, thing? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) I was intrigued to read that the NYPD, among other things, produces beach towels. Uh, that doesn't field, doesn't it? surprise me in the least. Yeah. No, you, the, the range of yeah. NYPD branded tat you can yeah. buy is is astonishing. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't really imagine wanting to have something that's um, Metropolitan Police branded, but I suppose it's maybe more aimed at tourists anyway. Very probably. I will confess that I do own, a, I'm not sure, I think it must be official. It was given to me by a friend of mine who is a police officer. It is a Metropolitan Police tea towel of some description. I don't know whether these are public, publicly available or, or purloined from a range of, um, you know, exclusively available to those who serve. I hope I haven't got him into trouble by announcing that. Inquiries have been launched over less. Um, Victor, would you be suiting up in in Scotland Yard branded gear? No, but then I don't wear any branded clothes, I don't think, so I'm not the right person (laughs) to, uh, to ask. I think it's important, though, to distinguish between... Uh, branding, uh, this exercise, uh, in order to raise the profile of uh, the Metropolitan Police and raising funds desperately needed for frontline policing, if that's the main purpose, that's outrageous because in a wealthy country like the UK, it's absurd that you have to sell tea towels or mugs or whatever it is in order to carry out the preservation of the security of uh, citizens. I don't really have a problem with the first, although, as you say, I think they're a bit slow on the uptake. And I'm not (laughs) sure that the British people, and certainly not Londoners, will respond as enthusiastically to this as Americans and New Yorkers. There's a different approach to these things in the US. Um, um, uh, but if uh, if it helps raise the profile of the Metropolitan Police in a positive way and uh, and removes some of the uh, uh, many uh, criticisms that have been made of the force over the last few decades, well, fair enough. But if it's just to raise money to do what should be paid for out of taxation, I think that's outrageous. Uh, Samira, will it work in the same way that the NYPD or LAPD or other American PD stuff does, though? Because the, the thing is that American police forces, because of the, the, the popular culture that has been created uh, about them and around them, do, do they just seem somehow kind of cooler? Is the, is, is, is the Scotland Yard logo going to have quite the same cachet as the NYPD one? Well, I guess you do have a lot of British crime drama, but I mean, I would kind of second Victor's point actually that if it's a fundraising exercise and I imagine that I mean I don't actually know about the NYPD and LAPD I would imagine that that is probably a motivation for them too it's not just just about branding um but I think um 
thinking about that in in terms of the UK, you know, it, it, it's we've had I think it's something like seven hundred and twenty million pounds uh, cut from the Metropolitan Police since two thousand and ten, more than three hundred million t- more to be cut from twenty twenty one. You've got the lowest uh, per head uh, police numbers uh, in the for twenty years at the moment. So, I think in that context, it's a little bit bleak, really. And you know, maybe there's a a bit of um, you know a bit of um, promotion and and branding and improvement of image to be done there but I think in terms of plugging the gap um, that's generally not how we do state services in the UK and I think it's not a positive societal trend if we that's what we're starting to do well not until now <laughs> anyway just as a, a final quick thought uh, Victor do you think that, that the British or the London police especially are an undervalued soft power asset are, are they something that probably foreign visitors have a higher a, a, a higher appreciation for than might be locally assumed Well, you're assuming that uh, foreign visitors are aware that it is one of, I think, 43 police services in the UK. I doubt that very much. (laughs) I would think they just see one police force. And so I think the whole point about the Met is probably lost on uh, most visitors. In fact, it's probably lost on a lot of Londoners too, I have to admit. I imagine most tourists probably think it's just Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) that's what they'll be selling it'll be it'll be the hats and the magnifying glasses that does bring us to the end of today's show samira shackle and victor bulma thomas thank you for joining us at midori house the show was produced by bill luti research by fernando augusto pacheco and barbara maimone our studio manager was kenya scarlet midori house returns at 1800 london i'm andrew mullet thank you very much for listening